I'm Tristan Reynolds, and welcome to the Ramblers Interview Podcast, where the Rambler staff has fascinating and engaging conversations with members of the transy community. This is a new feature for the Rambler, so I'd like to thank you for listening. The fact that we're new to podcasts also means that we don't have everything worked out yet. This makes it especially important that, if you like the podcast, you let us know. Share the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, or other social media, and get other people to listen, too. You can also send feedback to the email address rambler at transy.edu. That is R-A-M-B-L-E-R at transy, T-R-A-N-S-Y dot E-D-U. This week, for our first ever podcast, I've interviewed Dr. Peter Fossil. He's a professor of philosophy here at Transy and is also head of the PPE, or Politics, Philosophy, and Economics, program. He's a really fascinating guy to talk to. He's published an armful of books and has a really unique way of talking about philosophy. He manages to make it engaging, which isn't always the easiest thing to do when it comes to talking about old, dead white guys. Dr. Fossil has recently published a book, The Critical Thinking Toolkit, and that was initially the subject of our interview. But that isn't all we've talked about. Peter Fossil, who is the head of the PPE program at Transy and a professor of philosophy. Mm-hmm. We're here to discuss his most recently published book, The Critical Thinking Toolkit. Dr. Fossil, would you like to take a moment and just briefly describe the uh, argument of the book? Well, that's interesting you put it that way, to the extent that it has an argument as a whole. I mean, first I should say it's the third toolkit, so... First, there was a book called The Philosopher's Toolkit, which I did with this um, uh, colleague of mine, Julian Bagini, who was the editor of The Philosopher's Magazine. I used to, uh, I was a contributing editor there, and um, uh, we put that together. And the thought there was to uh, put together a kind of compendium of what we thought were the central concepts and uh, techniques that were used in philosophical thinking, in the sense that many books are, are books about, I don't know, uh, interesting figures in philosophy, basic uh, uh, premises or arguments in philosophy, based, uh, basic doctrines in philosophy, but almost nobody had done books on philosophical methods. So we tried to think uh, in terms of philosophy as a set of things that you can do or ways of thinking philosophically. So there the idea was how do you think philosophically in general. And our second book, with, uh, which I also did with Bagini, it's called the Ethics Toolkit, and there, the idea was how do you think about ethics, and um, what is it to think through these ethical issues, and how does philosophy approach ethical issues, and um, uh, then we we decided to do the third book. But the third one wasn't with Bagini; it was uh, I did it with two other fellows, um, Jamie Watson and Galen Force Forsman, Forsman, excuse me, um, and Jamie and Galen and I uh, approached this book a little bit differently. It, it was a sort of modification of uh, logic and critical thinking texts generally on the market. So many critical thinking books, or what you know goes by the name of critical thinking, are kind of baby logic books, uh, plus some uh, basic ideas about um, evidence and um, how to evaluate sources and things like that. But we wanted to do one that was broader. And so if the first toolkit was about how do you think philosophically, the second one was how to think about ethics, 
the third one was directed to this idea of thinking critically. What is it to think critically? And we try to take a very broad view of it. So the, uh, the, that if you, I'd say what's the argument of the book, the argument is that um, to think critically isn't, is to think logically, but it's not just to think in terms of logic and uh, science and that sort of thing. It's also to think about critic, to think critically requires uh, ideas of political and ethical criticism. It includes ideas of literary theory and rhetoric uh, so that, uh, we, so the way we have the book structured is um, uh, the first part is about logic. So we do think that logic is basic and I, I'm committed to that personally. So, You've got to be able to um, assess arguments for validity, for soundness, for cogency, for um, truth and falsity. And just in a way, um, you're looking at um, the way reasoning uh, you, to, to, to uh, reasoning can be understood through the categories of logic. But then we move on to things like um, cognitive error and perceptual. Uh, issues. So, you know, how uh, can we be, be deceived? This takes us more into things like cognitive science and psychology. How can perception fail us? How does memory fail us? We move on after that into issues of language. So how does language confuse us sometimes? How do we make mistakes in language? How does error, you know, spring out of the uh, complications of language? Um, how does politics and ethics affect us, you know, in terms of class gender, race, um, these th sorts of things. Um, and then uh, rhetoric. So things like, you know, how, how is our thinking structured by ideas of narrative, by metaphors, metonymies, synecdoches, similes, all these rhetorical poetic tropes. So because when we think, we don't just think in argument. We also think in symbols and we think in um, uh, poetic terms. And so if you're looking at the world critically, you've got to think not only what are the arguments out there, what are the, what's the evidence out there, but also what are the narratives and poetic uh, devices that are working on my thinking? What are, the, what, what are issues of voice and um, authority and position? Um, how might my um, psychology be effect, affecting me? And so that, the argument of the book is that to think critically requires many of the resources, you might say, of the liberal arts and sciences, uh, and not ju just science. I, I did skip. We, we do have a section on thinking scientifically, and okay. also, but also to how to criticize science. What's the difference between good science and bad science? Uh, junk science, fringe science, pseudoscience, all these terms, and good science. What are the different kinds of experiments that are used? What are the, uh, what are the things that make science work and not work? Um, tell me if I've got this wrong, mm -hmm. but it sounds like there, there are sort of two categories for you. There's logic and then all the thing, all the ways that we perceive logic to work. Is that kind of a fair one line summary? Uh, no, I wouldn't be so binary about it. I, okay. I was, I'm, I guess my vision is more like logic is part of a spectrum or a palette of things. Okay. Um, it's. I wouldn't say it's any more basic or the, or anything like that. It's. I mean, it is basic, but um, uh, you know, uh, rhetoric and poetry are kind of basic in a way too. So, I think it's more of like I'd I'd, I'd use more of a, my own metaphor would be more like a spectrum or a palette than um, um, a, a simple binary. And I think there's there are things that we didn't include because the book would just be too big. But um, 
uh, I, I sometimes I think about them like, yeah, I could have talked more about how to evaluate, I don't know, things on the internet or sources in the newspapers and things like Second that. Second edition, Second, right? Yeah, right, exactly. So, you know, so. Um, so I'm curious, you think about it as a spectrum. Do you attribute a hierarchy to it at all? Is is there a... Not for, not really. I mean, for different purposes, there will be. Okay. Yeah, but I, 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 I try to stay away from that myself. I think... Um, the hierarchy might depend upon your purposes. So if you're involved in a context in which um, scientific reasoning is preeminent, then you know issues about science will be uh, dominant. But if you're looking at, at things like um, advertising, for instance, or political rhetoric, the issues of poetry and rhetoric might be more interest, uh, more basic there. So I think what's basic is probably more context relative. Okay. Sorry, I run my mouth too much sometimes, so just interrupt me. <laughs> oh, please. no, this is great stuff. Yeah. Um, so looking at that spectrum, mm-hmm. assuming that our, our hypothetical reader has read the book, mm-hmm. what do you hope they'll be able um, to do with it? Yeah, that's happens. a good thing. So... May I, first, let me elaborate on the spectrum idea there. You know, I am—I have been informed by, in the book, teaching at a liberal arts college for. Gosh, let me see how long it is now. It's twenty-four years, I guess it is. So almost a quarter century, you know, teaching at liberal arts colleges, and I really am, you know, committed to the liberal arts, and and uh, even with PP&E, a, a sort of synthetic approach to things and this idea that all, you know, traditionally there were seven liberal arts and they were divided between quantitative and verbal sort of things in a, in a way. And um, I am committed to the idea that um, good thinking, strong thinking requires that spectrum of all seven. So what I'm hoping that people can do is face the many situations in life in which good reasoning can improve things. Uh, I am devoted to the idea that our lives are better when we think well. Some problems in life are economic. People don't have enough money, economic resources. Some problems in life are medical. People have diseases, you know, Zika is going around, you know, I saw what was it, polio was making a comeback, yellow fever was on the rise in certain parts. I mean, there's all kinds of diseases out there. Cancer is rampant. Um, but some problems that we face are problems of, of poor thinking. And um, I think the world would be a better place if people were able to think critically. And I think critically isn't necessary to be destructive, but it's to be able to assess uh, truth claims, various strategies for justification and persuasion. We are, we are not only um, uh, agents in the world, but the world acts on us. And to the extent that you are ignorant or blind to the, 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 the many ways that the world acts on us, you're going to be more of a passive person. You'll be uh, sort of manipulated by them and uh, driven around by them unknowingly. But once you gain the, the, the capacity to think critically, I think you can act more effectively and uh, more actively in the world and okay. be less of a passive uh, creature. Uh, there are two points I, I want to push on there. Um, mm-hmm. The first one is when when you say uh, improve 
your life? Do you, how do you mean that? Do you mean in terms of decision making? Uh, what what do you view as the extent of that uh, personal improvement? Yeah, I mean, again, there would be probably many contexts in that which uh, that that would apply. One, you know, in my logic class, which is a bit broader, and I bring in ideas of critical thinking there. We look at a um, a murder case, the West Memphis Three, it's known as. And, you know, there, there are cases, it, it looks like, uh, you know, that there were these three young uh, men, boys really at the time, who were falsely convicted of a, of a murder. Um, and one of them was sentenced to death. And so what I, I say to the students there is, look, people could go to the execution chamber on the basis of bad reasoning, you know, and you can also make mistakes in, the, in terms of the money you spend because the advertisers are working on you, the candidates you vote for. You, who of us has not looked at the elections sometimes and thought, like, this world needs some more critical thinking, you know? Um, and I do think that's true. I mean, democracy, in a way, is an achievement. Um, it's not enough to have the formal um, machinery of democracy in place, elections, for instance, you know, and elected representatives and, uh, um, and that sort of thing. Uh, if the people are, don't think well, uh, democracy will exist in form, but it'll function poorly. Uh, and make, uh, it'll, you'll come up with um, terrible policies and you'll elect terrible people. So uh, I think uh, democracy and arguably even real freedom requires a certain, it's an achievement and it's, some, it's an achievement of thinking to some extent. Not only, I don't want to say thinking is the only thing in the world. Academics have a tendency to you know, privilege thinking maybe a little bit too much, but I am committed to the ancient idea that good thinking leads ultimately to, to good living. So it helps you avoid error, helps you avoid being manipulated, and that can apply to many context, contexts in life. Uh, this actually dovetails nicely into the other point. Um, not to be facetious about it, but what uh, to think critically requires, to a certain extent, engaging with um, things that may be unpleasant or, or ideas that may be unpleasant. You talk about it leading to a better life. Uh, I guess the question is, does it necessarily lead to a happier one? Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, is ignorance bliss sometimes? Uh, well, I tried to work around the phrase, but yes. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, it's not necessarily the case. I mean, because first of all, it can be very unpleasant to find out you've been wrong about something. And I think that's happened to all of us. Um, yes. And... Um, uh, or that you've you know made mistakes. You know it's difficult to uh, acknowledge that. It also can be difficult socially, and uh, you know it's something we don't address in the, the text. But there is a time for criticism, and maybe a time not to criticize. And it takes good judgment and uh, development of a sensitive kind of um, character to um, discern when it's appropriate to criticize. I think uh, a, a risk one takes, and I've certainly succumbed to it myself, is to become overly critical. Um, and um, that can lead to unhappiness, I think, too. So, you know, there is more to life than truth, more to life than being right, uh, more to life than, um, uh, you know, not falling into error. Uh, leading a good life requires more than critical thinking. But having said that, and so I wouldn't say it's a sufficient condition for a good life, but I think without it, one takes a lot of risks. And one can be happy without it. But 
you're, I would say you're more vulnerable. You're certainly, there's a lot of vulnerabilities that open up for you if you're not, okay. if you don't have the capacity to think well. Okay. Um, so with that in mind, I, I guess the question is, uh, the way you've structured the book, uh, as I understand it, is, is this... Um, Actually, before we go on, can I yes. just elaborate a little bit? I was yeah. going to add, just so think about the the title of the book's toolkits, right? I mean, one of the questions you might ask to ch- just use that metaphor is, can you get have a happy life without many good tools? And I think the answer is true, yeah, sure. But if you have a lot of good tools and know how to use them, I'm somebody who you know is a little bit handy. I I do some carpentry and um, some things like that, or around uh, restore furniture sometimes. Um, I really appreciate having good tools. When I get a, a certain tool, it's not only delightful, but it allows me to do more. Now, was I happy and did I did pretty well without the tool sometimes, but having that additional tool sometimes can make a difference. So, yeah, ask yourself, you know, can you, could people exist without, I don't know, you know, a little tiny uh, wrench of a certain kind or, you know, a, a special kind of saw? Yeah, probably. But having that that blade and that special saw might help you to deal with certain materials that you couldn't deal with before. You know? Okay, so, does that make sense? Yeah. Um. So the toolkit structure, I think, is interesting. Um. Because I, I think the way we're sort of conditioned to read is is basically novelistic. Start at the first page, mm-hmm. go through to the end. Uh Is that? Is that the way you wrote the book? No, I'm and glad you raised that question. So it's especially true of the first two that we, we say in the introduction, you don't have to do this way. It's almost like more like a record album. Okay. You, know, you can put down the needle, the old school needle, or, you know, a, a CD. It's, you don't have to start at the beginning. Okay. You know, you can start anywhere. On the other, and one of the things we've included, we, so we one way that makes it distinctive in the way we've written it is we have sort of bite-sized chunks, you know, on topics. And, so we really kind of tried to compress and reduce things to these bite-sized pieces. But also at the end of each of them, we have a, a, a see also. So you can read the section. Then from that see also follow, it's almost like, you know, uh, in Goosebumps or there are all these, what's the Goosebumps or these, these books my kids used to read? There was like, choose, your own choose your own adventure. You know, you get to a certain point, then you can follow A or B or C. And it gives you the same way. You can weave through the text on these different paths that we've marked out. Or you can do on your own. On the other hand, we ha- did put certain things first, like I did put logic first, because okay. I think pedagogically it's good to get logic under one's belt first. It's one same reason we have logic as a 1,000 level class. It's not because it's easier. It's that we want you to take it early. Um, but um, no, you can read it however you like. Um, and, all, uh, and so there's many ways to weave your way through these texts, and that's intentional. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, staying with this topic of, of reading it, mm-hmm. uh, the the other two books uh, I know um, written very um, accessibly, mm-hmm. not a not a whole lot of jargon, right. uh, and and philosophy especially is a very uh, jargony field, I guess for lack of a better word. Uh, is is that a deliberate choice? And if Absolutely. so, what's behind it? Well, I'm glad you asked that question, too. So, you know, it was a question of audience. Um, okay. One of the things that's really been a gift for me in teaching at a liberal arts college rather than a research university is that I spend my days uh, communicating with 
uh, you know, sort of neophytes in philosophy, and um, rather than graduate students or um, you know, sometimes I go you know professional conferences where I deal with other colleagues, but. Uh, as a result, I've, I've had this pretty large spectrum in my writings. I've written for a scholarly audience where it's been other professionals, I've written for popular audiences where I don't presume any philosophical background at all. And this book is sort of in the middle. We've, we've sort of aimed at um, a generally literate audience. That is, it's not really philosophy for dummies. Um, it's philosophy for people who are, you know, have, to, have some smarts to them. But we don't presume that you have any degrees or anything like that. So, so we... We aim to be, and I think it's one reason that the earlier books were successful. They're sophisticated and yet accessible. And I've also learned to appreciate how difficult that really is. I mean, you know, writing highly technical philosophy is difficult. But you can just use a lot of, as you say, jargon or vocabulary that you presume that these other PhDs and professors will know. When you can't presume that, you must think through the concepts very clearly. How do I explain the a priori to someone who's you know, not gone to graduate school in philosophy? That re- requires really mastering the concept. I think um, uh, many professionals can benefit, and it's really enriched me as a scholar, so can benefit from trying to p- take technical language and express it in accessible uh, uh, terms. So, yeah, we've, we did that intentionally because we... We're committed to the idea that philosophy ought to be more widely spread. I mean, the Philosopher's Magazine that, Ju- that Julian edited has a similar mission. Like, um, We think that it's a bit of a problem today that philosophy is locked up in a way in universities and in academic contexts. That's not right. Many of the great philosophers over time have not been university people. And um, uh, universities do a lot of great philosophy, but it's not only done in university, nor should it be. And frankly, I think our culture has been impoverished to the extent to which we've sequestered it in universities. And it's partly our, we philosophers, we professionals that are, are to blame. Uh, we've sort of retreated a little bit and made, uh, into a sort of incestuous in, insider kind of discourse, whereas I think we really need to engage the, the broader world. And so part of it is mission here. We... we we as the authors of these texts have tried to bring philosophy uh, outside of the university, but, but in a sophisticated way, not just in a way that dumbs it down. Okay. Um, I want to take this moment to mention it because it's my new favorite fact about you. But you <laughs> previously published a book on philosophy as it relates to the Big Lebowski. Big Lebowski, yeah. I don't think it would be presumptuous to say that is also part of yeah. the uh, making philosophy more accessible, yes. Oh, true. It, it's absolutely true. I mean, I'm somebody who thinks that uh, pop culture, and certainly the Coen Brothers films, I mean, first of all, think of asking of Coen Brothers films, and the Coen Brothers are very smart. Uh, in fact, you know, one of them was a philosophy major at Princeton as an undergrad, uh, and wrote as a, an honor thesis on Wittgenstein's later theory of language, and it shows sometimes. And, I did not know that. Yeah, so they're, they're thoughtful people, and their films are deceptively simple sometimes. Having said that, I think even more broadly, you know, as I said, you know, philosophical ideas are out there. They've, they have affected our culture. They, ha- they have pervasively structured the way we think. And if you're not self-conscious about that, you're missing a lot. So 
part of the task of, let's say, a book like The Big Lebowski Philosophy is to show that you know, a film like The Big Lebowski Philosophy has you know, pretty deep philosophical import. And also to show that, look, even for things that maybe the Coen brothers didn't intend, if once you're trained in philosophical thinking, you can approach things like, uh, like popular Hollywood movies and get more out of them than you might have been able to do otherwise. So it's also an exhibition on the power of uh, the interpretive and analytic power of, uh, of the liberal arts in engaging popular culture. Um, that's, that's a lot of fun. And again, it's one of the things I really love about teaching at a liberal <laughs> arts college. I can do that, whereas sometimes my colleagues in, uh, at research universities, you know, they're, they're stuck writing about just other professionals in uh, highly technical academic journals, which is great, but here, you know, at a liberal arts college, and we do this in our classrooms too, you know, we engage, with, we want to show with our students that you can use this stuff, not just to go to grad school in philosophy or whatever, but you can use this stuff to enrich your life more generally. So I, I really know for myself that listening to music, going to films, reading books, all aspects of my life have been enriched by my uh, liberal arts education. Okay. Um, you mentioned that, that philosophical ideas sort of percolate their way into culture mm-hmm. on an unconscious level. Mm-hmm. Why do you think it's important, then, to make it more uh, apparent, more conscious, as opposed to letting it just sit in the kind of yeah. subculture? Well, it takes us back, again, to being more passive and more active. I think, you know, once it becomes conscious for you, you can um, respond to it uh, in more thoughtful ways, more... Um, careful and um, interesting ways, plus the fact that, I mean, to me, philosophy is an ongoing event, okay. and um, I think our uh, culture is better when, or, you know, is enriched when more people are engaged in it. You end up with a more sophisticated, thoughtful population, and, uh, uh, you know, f- philosophy will uh, become more elaborate and more sophisticated, more effective, uh, more current. Uh, yeah, I mean, the culture continues to take. The way I think about cultures is almost like this wheel that is drawing, like a water wheel. It's drawing from the past, pulls it up, and you know, achieves some kind of work, grinding out a new, uh, you know, corn mill, uh, flour, whatever wheat flour, but. Um, and then it goes around again, and it lifts up more, and it draws more from that uh, well of the past. Um, and so, the extent that we can—the past is sort of like a, set, a larder in a way, too—that you can draw from. One of one of, one of the things that I try to do, by the way, in the in the toolkits, um, is it, when you read them, you'll see that I refer a lot to old stuff, sometimes medieval Islamic philosophy, ancient Greek philosophy. Chinese philosophy, you know, and the European uh, tradition of philosophy. That's not just for illustrative purposes. I think um, myself that we one of the things that's impoverished contemporary society is that we've turned our back a bit on the past. Um, some people think of the past as just nothing but, you know, classist, racist, patriarchal, you know, uh, garbage that can just be ignored. I don't think that's true at all. I mean, there were problems in the past. But guess what? There's problems in the present, too. I mean, if um, having problems in your society is a, a reason to ignore the whole thing, you should ignore the whole thing today, too. But 
Uh, so I think that the past and the tradition are, is a kind of larder from which we draw. But then you have to take it forward. You have to say, okay, this is what they did in the past. I'm going to appropriate, take over, a co- you know, some of it myself, and then go forward with it, either by adopting some of it or by rebelling against some of it uh, or synthesizing new with it. But if you don't have those larders, again, you've just you've just emptied out. You've just lost a whole set of riches that you can draw from. So, I'm I'm curious. This withdrawing process you're describing hasn't that happened to a certain extent with uh, with professional philosophy? Well, you mean from the past? Yeah, I mean there yes. there there are. I, I, this is a struggle that goes on within our profession. There are many people within my profession who have no interest in um, uh, past philosophy. They follow a kind of model uh, adopted sort of from the natural sciences where really the most important stuff is just the current stuff. The past is of antiquarian interest, but for the most part, uh, you know, you, it's only the current stuff that's, that's the state of the art. Philosophy is a bit more, it's a bit more like a mix of uh, science and literature in the sense that the Iliad, I think, is still great literature and much to be learned from. Shakespeare is still much to be learned from. Uh, Wollstonecraft and uh, de Beauvoir are still much to be learned from. Um, much to be left behind, too. But I, I think um, that my colleagues are mistaken. And that uh, Those who have abandoned... There, there was a colleague up at the University of Cincinnati who used to sign on his door and said, just say no to the history of philosophy. I'm very much on the other side. I think that f- to do philosophy well, you have to have a rich understanding of the history of philosophy. And I think uh, philosophy that doesn't do that often shows shows its weakness for not having that background. Uh, To play devil's advocate here for a moment. Sure. Uh, One thing I love about you, you're good at that. uh, It's a good philosophical trait, by the way. Well, some of it's devil's advocacy, (laughs) some of it's just being... Just devilish. Yeah. But because there is such a, a long uh, philosophical tradition, mm. it can be somewhat intimidating to, to try and get into it. It's, it's almost like trying to get into Star Trek or something. Oh, it's true. Uh, I, and that's maybe, it's an issue. I know, it's true. Um, that's why maybe we need many people working on it, because, you know, I've spent most of my, since I was in college, really, you know, studying the history of philosophy and I've published, you know, a lot of things on it, but I still only feel like I've, you know, scratched the surface. And yeah, I mean, in a way, that's a it's comforting because you know there's still much out there to draw from. But so like the history of art, you know, I mean, think about how much art there is out there, you know, and how much music, the history of music, one can never, uh, you know, understand it all. But still. You know, to leave it all behind. But so you're right. I mean, one of the things that I think we learn from our historical, not uh, you know, pre- getting involved in the history of philosophy is that sort of humility in a way, because one of the things I'm interested in as uh, someone who studies skepticism is a sense of human finitude, and we quickly learn that um, as individuals, we're very very finite. Our lives are so short, and you know, we only, and so it's presumptuous sometimes you read these articles that that claim to have like you know that's what, what i mean like they'll reject the whole tradition you know like they've they've they're done with 
the rationalists or they're done with Descartes or they're done with Greek philosophy for these reasons. And I think like, man, it's so hubristic. I mean, it's so arrogant the way that you think you have mastered it so much that you can make those pronouncements. I think you know, it gives you a sense of humility to realize how much is out there that you don't know and you're never going to know. It also, as I said at first, it, it does give us an imperative as a collective that maybe there's a benefit to having many people involved in it so that if, you know, if none of us individually can master it, maybe as a, as a collective we can have some hope of, um, of, of, of a meaningful engagement with the, the past. I, uh, I dedicated, uh, we have an edited book I did with this guy, David Cooper, here it is. Uh, philosophy the classic readings that, it's a, that's an arrogant title because you know there are many collections of classic readings but th- this was the biggest cl- uh, collection ever published as far as I know and uh, you c- for for those of you listening it is the size of several bibles yeah it's uh, let's see the pages here it's about 1400 pages long in the beginning we have a um, timeline uh, that you can look at it goes page after page of philosophers by century but also one thing i wanted to say is uh, we dedicated it to uh, guy montag who's a character in uh ray bradbury's fahrenheit 451 was a very influential book for me as in uh, a young person and in that you may remember that one of the things that happens in fahrenheit 451 is this society decides to burn all its books i wanted to be someone like guy montag who's a who saved some books because I think that in our culture, that's, it, it is going on. There's a lot of book burning that goes on. Not in a physical way, but it's that disregard of the tradition. And so there were people like Guy in the book, as you may remember, who each memorized a book to save it. Um, and now you can see the fragility of that, because if one of them perishes, that book is now gone. But on the other hand, there are those people in the world, uh, like Guy and like me and like David Cooper, who are saving what we can and carrying it forward to future generations. And, um, yeah, you can't save everything. Um, but you can save a little bit. You can save some. I'm curious, because the toolkits you published it mm. bring it back a little bit. Yeah. Um, they're very much focused on method. Right. You know, how to think logically, how That's to think critically, how to think ethically. That's right. I'm curious what you think uh, if philosophy was just about the method. Mm-hmm. Once you've established the method, you wouldn't need any of the history. So I'm curious. Well, I think you would. It's because the method what? is sort of formal, though. I mean, you, you still need content. And um, I think it's there is more than the method. Uh, and you're going to want to look at the specific uh, topical ideas. That's where you get... So that... In fact, the word topical is, gives us a clue here, too. So a topic comes from the Greek word topos, which means place. Um, and what um, thinking requires, I would say, are topoi. This is an Aristotelian word, a place for thinking. And when you're in that place, you need both the tools, but you need material to work on with the tools. And the different um, doctrines and contents help create that topos, there was a different topoi. And then you can use the method to come into the topo, topos, or the various topoi, and uh, cultivate it. Almost like you'd cultivate a field. Uh, uh, different farmers farm different fields. You can farm Aristotelian philosophy. 
You can farm like I do, Humean philosophy. You can farm, you know, modern uh, contemporary feminism um, using these tools. You know, the tools are the uh, the plows and the the scythes and the sickles and the uh, whatever else you use to farm. You know, the pitchforks, uh, the combines. You know, if you get more contemporary, but. Um, you know, you've got to have the field to plow and to cultivate, and I think the the content. It's, so it's not just method, but on the other hand, uh, you know, I do want to emphasize. You know, we we are as human beings born to think. I think it's one of the things that we do. Aristotle's kind of right that we think in ways that are a little bit different than dogs and cats and fish, um, but it's not enough. To, the resources that we're born with aren't the end of the story. What we do, what philosophers have done, is cultivated those and developed those and articulated those, crafted those into these tools. So I, again, I want to say thinking is both natural, but it's an achievement too. And um, you, you can use these tools to achieve, as Aristotle thought, higher order you know, thinking, improved thinking. So as long as we're talking about places, mm. uh, let's talk about what you've done most of your work. You've, mm. you've taught... Uh, for 24 years, you said? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's full-time. I mean, par- I was teaching part-time a few years before that, so oh, it's probably my. like, you know, more like 26 or 7 years. You know? So how... Would it be fair to describe you as a student of philosophy? Yes. How has teaching philosophy influenced you as a student, then? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean... Uh, you know, again, being at a, an undergraduate institution primarily always reminds me that you know you have to keep this stuff relevant to some extent. Okay, how and do you mean? Well, you have to show how it applies to life, and um, that has influenced me when I study philosophy. I often think to myself, like, what is the important stuff here? You know, one thing Nietzsche makes this point about facts, for instance. You know, if one thing that science can do is just you know give us facts, but Look, what philosophy then says, but what are the important facts? You know, what are the facts that we really should attend to? Because you can study anything from like whatever the this thing in worms and this thing over here and this, but you have to make choices, even as scientists, about where will you devote your resources, your laboratory work, your your investigations, and also. But for me, as a as a, as a philosopher, when I read texts, there's different ways to go at them. But one of the things that I've you know, come to through my own teaching and my own th- thinking about it has been to always remember, uh, ask myself the question, okay, so here's the conceptual system this philosopher is developing. So what? You know, how does it, re- how does it bear on life? How is it, you know, going to help people or, you know, change their lives or improve their thinking? What's the practical, you know, I don't want to say just practical, it's, I don't, it's not sometimes you think too much in terms of like employment and things like that, but I mean just, how does this affect one's life? What's the kernel here that's important? Why should I care about this? Uh, it seems like a very object-focused approach. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, so, how do I say this? I suppose the question is where does it start for you? Does it start with the, um, I guess, the problem or the issue, the, the object? Interesting. Or do um, you come with the uh, the frame? That's a really interesting question. Maybe I'm, I, 
tell me if I'm not answering it when I respond to this, because this is what I'm thinking in response to your question. Um, so there are sort of two things that brought me into philosophy that continue to lead me on. One of the things was just this. I, I remember when I was very young, uh, I was very religious. I was Catholic. And uh, that's one thing that got me into philosophy, because Catholics tend to be really interested in philosophy and theology. But I also noticed, like, there are always claims that people made, like, this is the truth. And for me as a person, I always felt like, how do you know that? Because over there, they think that's the truth. And over there, they think that's the truth. And you think this is right, but then they think that's right. And um, as an individual, I was could look into my own, you know, mind and think, like, I don't really know which is right here. And I wanted to know which was right. But curiously, what I started to learn about was, like, maybe how how little anybody really does know is what got me into skepticism. And I am convinced still too that today that many people overplay their hand. Like they claim to know more than they really know. And on the basis of that, I think it causes certain problems. So I was drawn into this idea of what are the limits of knowing and, you know, can they be overcome and what have been the, the, um, strategies that people have used to overcome them and to improve thinking. So I got into that sort of epistemological problem of skepticism and finitude. But the second thing was, I still feel this way, like, you know, um, it, stu- studying for me is almost like traveling in the sense that, so what, you know, when I like to travel, and you, as you know, I, I like to travel. This this past summer I was in Nigeria, but some of the places that I've really liked to go and places that have been the most different from where I live now. So I remember when I got to Turkey the first time, I, was, I just was thrilled by it because it was so different. I remember coming out of a place I was staying in Ankara one morning and just hearing, uh, you know, the Mizazine, the call to prayer going on. And um, I was thinking, you know, boy, you're not in Kansas anymore. I love that feeling. And I find that actually through study. So when I study the ancients, I think the, I, I love the it's almost like anthropology, seeing a different way of looking at the world. And then we look at the Kantian lens and see how Kantians look at the world and how the medievals looked at the world. And for me, it's, it's not just tourism, but I think to myself, wow, there have been other ways. You know, people, you know, people feel like the way we live now as modern Americans here is like the natural way to live or the right way to live. You know, it's just one among thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of different ways that humans have lived. Each one of those, I've often felt like maybe I have something to learn from them. You know, it's so small-minded and provincial and arrogant to think that the way we think about things today is the best way or the only way. What about all these other different ways? It's almost like with music. Like, if you just listen to contemporary top 40 radio of all you're missing like you're missing renaissance music you're missing um you know midi uh medieval music you're missing uh you know baroque music you're missing uh japanese music you're missing you know south uh, american latin music i don't there so many kinds of music and if you only listen to one aren't you, don't you feel impoverished by that so to me studying the history of philosophy i i get this this uh excitement about seeing the world through a different conceptual scheme and but so there's an excitement about it. That's almost like the, the travel part of it. But then I think to myself, well, is there anything I can use here to enrich my own life? Because sometimes maybe we, I'm not somebody who actually believes that 
a world has been progressive necessarily. Some things make a progress, but you know, maybe we lost something from the Middle Ages. Maybe we lost something from the ancient world, and maybe we might want to take it back. You know, uh, I'm convinced that everything's better now. I think our dental skills are better, <laughs> but do we have more meaningful lives than than the ancients had? In some ways, maybe, but you know, suicide rates are very high still. De depression's very high. Uh, divorce is high. Uh, all these, all the people on uh, antidepressants, anti-anxieties, and dr drugs and things suggest that maybe our lives are not utterly complete. And this smug, self-satisfied, complacent idea that there's, there's nothing to be learned from others. So it's, I think it's important to, you know, we, we, we focus on diversity in our curriculums today in the sense that we want you to read non-Western stuff. We want you to read, you know, uh, Asian, Latin American, all kinds of stuff. And that's important. But also, don't forget about the past. The past is a new country, too. The past is a country you should visit. I kind of want to push back on a few things you said. Okay, good, good. Uh, when when you talk about society as is not necessarily progressing, mm -hmm. I I'm inclined to say uh, the the kind of examples you're offering of, of antidepressants or or uh, suicide rates, I'm not sure that we've created a new problem, or if we're just recognizing an old problem better now. You're how right. do you? We don't. I, that's that's a good question, a skeptical question. You know, how, how do we know whether things are worse? But we don't know that it's better, do we? Either. Why do we? You know, it could be better, could be worse. It's maybe a, a live question. But one thing I think those any judgment you make is going to require standards of okay. evaluation. But you know, aren't there different standards? I mean, there are the standards of biology and lifespan and things like that. But then there's also this the standards of meaning and uh, uh, f feeling satisfied with life, ha happy, spiritually fulfilled, psychologically, you know, uh, content. Um, uh, th 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 those, there's different criteria for progress, a different cr criteria for success. And you ever read, um, so Brave New World has raised the issue. Right? I have. So you might remember one of the guys there thinks that he'd be happier living out on a sort of rocky island all by himself. And they take, um, the Brave New World people take this guy off of a, a Native American reservation and bring him into the Brave New World. What does he end up doing? Hangs uh, himself. Yeah. And it's like, from why, why would that be the case? Well, maybe he found this world, you know, the Brave New World where people took Soma and, you know, uh, deadened themselves through um, spectacle and drugs. Um, not as, as satisfying as the rugged world out on an island or the impoverished world out on the uh, Indian reservation. Uh, it's a good question. I mean, somebody once was talking about progress in the presence of the, the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein. And, he's, and this, he raised the question, like, why do you think uh, things are better today? And the guy said, well, and Wittgenstein's answer was like, well, of course you think those are the the proper standards to you know, evaluate by, but do you think people in the past would use those same standards? You know, that's kind of the way I, I look at it too. It might, there might, I'm not denying that there's progress though, by the way, too. There might be, we might be the happiest, you know, President Obama recently said, this is the best time. I was struck by this. He said when he was uh, speaking somewhere, it was China, I don't know, but he said, this is the best time to have been born. 
I don't know if that's true or not. Maybe, but I must say, I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced it's it's wrong, but I'm not convinced it's right either. And that's one of the things that keeps me reading because I'm I'm often thinking like, yeah, you know, there's 19th century German Germany had something that you know we can learn from. I see it in the art. Like all of a sudden. I learned like a new kind of music that I haven't heard before. It doesn't ever happen to you. It's like all of a sudden you've been introduced to, I don't know, Nigerian high life music or something. You're like, wow, it's a new thing to add to the big stew of life, you know? And it's almost like, uh, like have you ever felt like, how did they, we were talking before, you, I think we started the recording here. How did we get along without that? You know? <laughs> now that we have it. You can see life is better. You know, yeah. I don't know. What did we do before iPhones? Right. Um, the the picture you're painting of uh, examining a, a culture or a way of thinking and, and picking out what's useful about that, it sounds very appealing, but I, I'm getting hung up on the idea that it's, it's a very deliberate process you're describing. Yeah. And I don't know how... I guess the question is, how possible do you think it is to live that deliberately from moment to uh, moment? Well, I think it's good. And I thought you were also going to ask, because there is a criticism I have in my own mind that is raised by critical thinking. So I'm really happy about it, too. People will notice that, look, privileged Westerners like me, white males especially, have in the past appropriated, stolen, colonized, taken from other cultures. If you go to the... I, one of my favorite places in the world is the British Museum in London. But in a way, it's like a, a house of loot, you know, that the British stole from around the world. Or not, depending on how you interpret it. But, um, you can think of some Greek sculptures in particular. Yeah, exactly. Now, they were given permission to take them, by the way, from the Parthenon, the Elgin marbles. But um, on the other hand, well, permission by whom? You know, at any rate, there's, that, that's an interesting debate in itself. So... To what extent is this model I'm talking about a kind of like colonization, you know, or appropriate uh, model of um, exploitation uh, of other cultures and even of the past? That's a good question. I think, you know, it's important to raise that and to be very careful. And that's one reason you want to be deliberate, because uh, one can learn from others in a way that's maybe exploitive, appropriative, uh, degrading... um, Violent and damaging, but I but I will say, and sometimes I think the critics go too far. It's not always that way. I mean, sometimes one if you look at history, the, the way cultures have interacted and learned from one another has been very you know positive for both cultures. I mean, you want to isolate them from one another either. I mean, as if that were even possible, but. Uh, we have to. One reason is to be deliberate. I think to answer your question is to so that we don't exploit and um, uh, unjustly appropriate and uh, unthinkingly and, uh, and abusively appropriate. Let's put it that way. But can it be done all the time? <coughs> no. We are not only creatures of thought. We are also creatures uh, who are not only. I, I, one thing I think people like Freud and. Uh, you know, um, Jung and uh, even Kant and others, or Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, are right about is that Hartman, there's all kinds of middle 19th century thinkers who started developing the theory of the unconscious. I think that, yeah, there are dimensions of our life that are unconscious and maybe even the biggest parts of our lives. But again, 
I think it's an important role for conscious, reflective, deliberative life. I mean, that is the premise that you might say people like me, teachers and teachers about thinking, you know, buy into that is good to question. You know, how important is thinking really? How is it, you know, aren't there, isn't there more to life? But I am committed to the idea that it's, it's maybe not, certainly not all of life, but it's still important. So, but you're right. There's much more to life and it can't be all of life. Well, but, but there's a measure of control to thinking. So even if it's not all of your life, it's still the part you can tinker with. Yeah, yeah. Um, I put my tools down sometimes and go in for dinner, you know, or go out dancing or whatever, you know, but I don't need to have my toolkit with me all the time. Um, so slowly making our way back to the book. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) Um, in in developing that uh, metaphorical toolkit, how um, I guess I guess the, the question is: Can you describe how you developed the the thinking tools to the point where you could then? write them down yeah well that's you know i'm gonna i guess illustrate that it's i'm not entirely a deliberative person myself because i think they though many of them arose in my consciousness in a sort of gradual organic way by by teaching uh, for a long time and reading for a long time um I think that the toolkits could not have been written as they are without, for me, years of experience as a teacher and a scholar myself. So it, there wasn't a single principle of order to it. Okay. Uh, there was an inductive, lived experience that, out of which many of those topics emerged. So... Why did we pick those rather than others? Because you could, you know, but having taught intro to philosophy, logic, and other courses over many years, raised children, uh, <laughs> and seeing in my own life, too, like what's been important for me, um, 20 years ago, I would have written a very different book. Dr. Peter Fossil, thank you for your time. And thank you for listening. Since this is a new format for The Rambler, I'd like to take a little time at the end of this podcast to talk to you about it. We'll have a new interview podcast out each Monday that you can listen to. And because it's a podcast, there's really no limit to the topics we can talk about. We'll cover just about anything you can think of. So if you have suggestions for either people at Transy for us to interview or topics for us to cover, you can email them to rambler at transy.edu with the subject line podcast. That is R-A-M-B-L-E-R at transy.edu. If you're a musician and you'd like to have your music featured on the podcast in the intro and outro segments, email us at rambler at transy.edu with the subject line podcast music. And if you'd like to sponsor the podcast, contact us at rambler at transy.edu using the subject line sponsor. The preceding podcast was a production of Rambler Media. Our editor-in-chief is Megan Graft. 
Our managing editor is Madison Crater. Our creative director is Tyler Lega. Our producer is Brandon Trapp. I'm Tristan Reynolds. Thank you for listening.